Amen. Well, the uh, two barns that you see are just west of Fleming, Colorado. Uh, both of them built about the same time. The one on the left is immediately outside of Fleming. It's been well cared for. The other one's about a mile and a half down the road. And if you look for that today, you won't find it. Beth and I have a series of pictures. And by the way, where is Beth? Oh, she's way back over here in the corner. The lovely lady with a smile on her face. So uh, we love to take barn pictures, but uh, over the years we just took this barn because it, every time we take a picture it would be a little lower to the ground. And now there's just a little bit of framework left where there probably were some animal stalls. And that's, that's all that's left of the barn. But the truth of the matter is both of these barns are going to one day, one day be a pile of rubble. And uh, so we've been talking about life under the sun. And, uh, you know, last week Dan was talking about uh, better uh, we than me. And that's absolutely true. And we're going to look at an old foolish king who was all about me and nothing about thee and, uh, in our text for today. But as we begin, I would like you to write down three things that people spend their lives to possess. Three things that people spend their lives to possess. Don't just look at me. You can use your phone. It's okay. <clears throat> I actually type faster than I can write. No, I can write pretty fast, but you cannot read it. But when I type it, you, there's a chance. Spell check is wonderful. So somebody tell me, what is one thing that people in this life desire to possess? Power? House, okay, house, okay. Money. Money. I think I heard that last time. <laughs> okay, what else? Time. Time. Time is ticking away, tick, tick, ticking away. Yeah, and we only have the same, I mean, every day we have the same amount as everybody else, but time. How we spend it is really crucial. Okay, what else? Comfort. We work with lots of churches. Pat and Jolene and I worked in a church in Cheyenne together and in Los Animas together. And it's amazing when people want to be comfortable, God can't work. And to be honest with you, most churches don't want leadership. They want somebody to manage. And they want someone to play pastor fetch. And we see that a lot. So, uh, uh, and churches want the status quo. But, uh, and churches are often like the king that's described in this passage. Okay, somebody else. It's not bad to be comfortable, but it's not good to stay there. <laughs> What's that? Security. Security. Okay. So I, I think it was um, the guy that uh, saddled up your horses. We got a trail to blaze. Yeah, they were building a, a, a driveway so to protect his kids, and he, he ran over one of his children. So we can seek it, but sometimes we don't find it. Okay, somebody else. One more. Health. Huh. <clears throat> Howard Hendricks uh, was one of my favorite professors, and Howard said he was going to be a surgeon, but he said, you know, if I fix them, they're still going to die. But if they come to know Christ, they're going to live forever. I was, going to, I was a structural engineer, got to work on some phenomenal projects. But one of the things that moved me is I was, I was uh, reading in Revelation, it says there's going to be a great earthquake, and all the islands are going to be moved out of their place, and all the mountains are going to be brought low. And I thought, everything in which I'm investing my life will one day be a pile of rubble. doesn't mean we don't need to build buildings. 
God bless those engineers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm doing what I need to be doing. And uh, I, I loved engineering. I loved building. I loved construction. So as we continue today, we're going to talk about a guy named Viktor Frankl as we begin. Uh, because we're looking for, uh, we're talking about meaning and significance in life. And uh, as we uh, unpack the text today, it, it's just full, full of truth. But I'm not going to stop with Ecclesiastes because, you know, week after week we almost end on a bummer. And I'm going to move on to the, we're going to read the rest of the story as we close. But Viktor Frankl was a uh, uh, Holocaust survivor. He was a psychiatrist. They kept him alive to keep the, the slaves alive so that they could feed the Nazi war machine. And uh, he observed people. And he was actually working on a book, and he kind of kept little scraps of paper and notes as he was in the camp. But in 1944, the 1st of December, a rumor spread through the camp that they would be freed by Christmas. And everybody was excited, thrilled. And Christmas came and they were not freed. And between Christmas and New Year's, he said the death rate soared because people gave up hope. They just gave up hope. And they were freed, I think, in April. And, uh, but he wrote this book called... Uh, a Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning is the primary motivation in his life and not a secondary rationalization of instinctual drives. This meaning is unique and specific in that it must, be, must and can be fulfilled by him or her alone. Each one of us here is unique. There's nobody in this room that's like you. Uh, one of the, the books that I helped write, the, the last statement in the book said, you will never be as good as the person you try to imitate. And nobody can be at good, uh, as good at being you as you. And we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works uh, that we should do them, God or, which God ordained before him that we should do them. So each one of us has special tasks. There are engineers, there are teachers, there are uh, uh, construction workers, there are softball players, and, and the whole gamut. And we need to be doing what God has wired us to do. And he has given us time to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish. Our problem is we want to accomplish what everybody else wants to accomplish as well. But it must be fulfilled by him or her alone. Only then does it achieve a significance which will satisfy his own will to meaning. There are some authors who contend that meanings and values are nothing but defense mechanisms, reaction formations, and sublimations. A lot of big words. But as for myself, I would not be willing to live merely for the sake of my defense mechanisms. Nor would I be ready to die merely for the sake of my reaction formations. Man, however, is able to live and even to die for the sake of his ideals and values. And so most people spend their lives on things that are fleeting, that are temporary. One more tournament. I mean, uh, after one of the Super Bowls, uh, one of the all-star players said, how come we're going to play it again next year if it's so super? Everything's transitory. And he goes on to say, a public opinion poll was conducted a few years ago in France. 89% of the people polled admitted that man needs something for the sake of which to live. 
61% conceded that there was something or someone in their own lives for whose sake they were even ready to die. So that's getting down to where life really happens. And then notice here, another statistical survey, almost 8,000 students, 48 colleges, uh, in a, was conducted by social scientists from John Hopkins University. Their preliminary report is part of a two-year study sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. Asked what they considered very important to them now, 16% of the students checked making a lot of money. 16%. However, 78% said their first goal was find a purpose and a meaning to my life. Now, if you're a young person, if you're a millennial, this is really important to you. They have a reason to live. Is that correct? Don't tell me there's no millennial. No, you're not going to own it. Yeah, you want a reason to exist. When I was a freshman at Colorado State University, I was searching for meaning. And uh, I didn't know if I would go to heaven or I'd go to hell, and that was in the back of my mind because I'd had uh, surgery as a young man for, to remove a bone spur that was six inches long. <laughs> and uh, can't, the doctor said, we don't know if it's malignant or not until we take it off. And I thought, no, that's not a very good prospect. It wasn't, and I'm still here. As a matter of fact, Dan uh, Hardy said, uh, he read this passage about an old and foolish king, and he said, you know, we ought to have Penfold preach this passage. I've got purpose. I mean, <laughs> in college, though, I, I was wondering. And then, by the grace of God, we moved across the hall from two believers as we were moving our drawers into the room, both literally and figuratively. They said, would you guys like to talk about Jesus Christ? And I said, I would rather talk than study. I had a real flippant attitude. And they shared the gospel. I'd grown up in church. I left church my senior year on Christmas Eve because the preacher said, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth if you don't want to. It's not important. And I said, if these things aren't important, then why bother? So I was ready to check out. And I did. And I heard the gospel. On Friday morning, they shared on a Sunday night, I could not get the name of Jesus Christ out of my mind. It was like it was branded in my forehead. When I woke up in the morning, the first thought in my mind was Jesus Christ. And it was not blasphemous. When I went to bed at night, the last thought in my mind was Jesus Christ. When I sat down to study, I got up from eating... It was like God had branded his name in my forehead and I couldn't get it out. And on Friday morning, I looked in the mirror and saw myself and I had my toothbrush right here and I said, Penfold, your problem is you're a sinner. Well, I went to class that day and I reached in the drawer and grabbed a pair of shoes, reached in my sock drawer and grabbed a pair of socks. I had my head down on the way to class and uh, I saw my shoes and they didn't match. And then I saw my socks. They didn't match either. And I thought, oh man, I hope nobody else is looking down. And the plaza was filled with students. It was about 10 till 8 on a Friday morning. And I looked across the plaza and there was not one head that was up. Everybody was in deep thought. And they were pondering probably the same kind of questions that I was. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going to go? So that night I came home and it... Uh, about four minutes after 10, I uh, closed my eyes in my bed and prayed. And I didn't know how to pray even though I'd been in church all those years. And I said, Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. These are the exact words. I recognize I'm a sinner. I want you to forgive my sin. I want you to come into my heart and I want you to change my life. Not great theology, but God answered 
even the foolish prayer of a nearly 19-year-old young man. And my life changed. Prior to that, uh, my life was... uh, A guy said one time, I have an alarm clock that tells me when I should get up. I need one to tell me why. Some of you can identify with that. When I met Christ, I found the why. So, um, during those days when I was searching, I went to the Green Onion in downtown Fort Collins. It was an old dive. I didn't go there to drink. I went there to observe. And I saw the go-go girls up on the stage. And they were dancing furiously. And, uh, but their, their faces were expressionless. They were just collecting a check. And I saw another guy that was kind of a stud on campus. And he was there and half gone. And somebody accidentally bumped into him and he stood up ready to go to blows. And I thought, if this is life, it's not, not going to be what I want. So uh, I, I searched until I found Christ. And God in his goodness brought these two men across the hall from us. Or he brought, well, he, he brought us across the hall from them. So when we come to Ecclesiastes, uh, there's a bit of an interpretive challenge. And the question is, are there two kings in view or three kings in view? And the text that was read for you, the, NI, uh, the ESV, uh, literally has it as uh, two kings in view. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though his own kingdom, uh, in his own kingdom he had been poor, born poor. So the old foolish king is the one who was young in prison. And uh, I saw all the living move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. Now the other interpretation is there's uh, three kings. And the NIV, uh, New American Standard, and uh, New New King James and other translations have it as three kings. And as I've looked at the text and examined it, I I think there are three. And, And that fits with the tenor of the whole book of Uh, of Ecclesiastes about the the futility of what goes on. Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Uh, Let me go on to the... uh, uh, Than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. If you look back at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 4 verse 12, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a three-fourth cord is not quickly broken. But here we have a king that's trying to stand alone. He's trying to stand alone. So, uh, so in this case, the poor wise youth is the one that comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth. And I think we have that up there. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and grasping for the wind. There's that theme repeated again. Vanity. Grasping for the wind. How many people are doing that? You're playing for the trophy. Or as you get older, you're trying to get your golf score down to under 90. Sometimes under 80. Or... uh, 
you know, you have all these trophies up on your shelves. Our kids did well in sports in high school, and they had all these trophies. We finally took pictures of them and sent them to them. And guess where the trophies are? In the landfill. So, um, so here's, here's the issue. Uh, that there, I think there were three kings. Whether there's three or two, the point is the same. There's vanity and chasing after the wind because people were seeking their influence and their power. Everything that they did was under the sun. Under the sun. So the principle is human glory fades rapidly. So there's the promise of youth and ability, Ecclesiastes 4, uh, 13 and 14. Better is a poor, wise youth than an old, foolish king who will be admonished no more. Uh, it's a terrible thing to be old and foolish, I think. Proverbs 18:1: a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. There are a lot of people, you know, here we, we had an election not too long ago and um, half of the country was enamored with President Trump and half of the country was ready to impeach him before he took office. Prior to that, it was Barack Obama. You had the two Bushes. You had Bill Clinton. I can remember all the way back to uh, Eisenhower. I was alive during Truman's uh, reign, but I don't remember him. I was small then. But I've, I've just observed, you know, a president leaves and everybody's saying, oh man, we're glad that's over. But we have this new guy. And guess what? In two more years, people are going to be saying, oh man, this is terrible. Some people are already saying that. And I'm not taking sides. I just want you to know. That's what happens. If we put all our apples into the basket of this world, we're going to be disappointed. Because there's a greater king. There's a greater ruler. And that's who we serve. That's who we serve. So there was this promise of youth and ability. And in verse 14 of, chapter, of Ecclesiastes 4, For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. And that's that he is the one that determines whether there's two or three. All he was, although he was born poor in his kingdom. So there's a, a kid that comes out. In a sense, David was like that. I can't find anybody in Scripture that fits all three of these consecutively in order. But David was not really in prison, although he was pursued heavily by Saul. His life was no picnic in the park. But when he became king, people rejoiced. But then by the end of his kingdom, people were in rebellion. Even when Solomon was made king, Adonijah thought, I'll be the king. So there was upset in his house. And of course, some of that came because of David's sin. He committed two sins of high hand, adultery and murder. Neither one had sacrifices that were available. Those were mortal sins, in a sense. And yet he humbled himself before God. So he wasn't old and foolish. He was still old and wise. But when he numbered the nation of Israel, I think he was trying to say, you know, look at, look at the kingdom I have. It reminds me of the woodpecker that was pecking away at the tree and suddenly the tree was struck by lightning and the woodpecker was cast away about 200 yards and staggered back to his feet and looked and he said, wow, look at what I did. <laughs> David was saying, look at how mighty I am. And so Satan moved him to number him, but David numbered them and, and it cost them, cost him 70,000 lives because he was thinking under the sun, not above it. At any rate, that's getting too convicting, so we better move on. Um, 
there was the foolish king Saul. And if you look at Saul, he was, he was tall. He was head and shoulders above everybody. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 to 11. Uh, we see the, an event in the life of Saul that marked him for the rest of his life. Uh, Saul was a... Uh, overall, he was a good leader, but he made two really bad mistakes, and this is one of them. The nation of Israel had gathered together to go to war with the Philistines, and they called for Samuel to offer a sacrifice because they didn't want to go to the, the battle without the sacrifice in place. They wanted to be covered, in a sense. So... Samuel didn't come, and Samuel didn't come, and Samuel didn't come. First Samuel 13.8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring, me, uh, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. Samuel came on the day at the appointed time, but Saul was not a patient man. Samuel came and Saul went to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, well, I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down to me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. The Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So he operated under the sun. He said, man, I can't wait on Samuel. Samuel, I'll have to do it myself. A foolish king. And it cost him. And it cost him. So, um, and he reigned for 40 years. But it cost him. And then Joseph was a man who was in prison. Joseph, uh, and if, if, you, if you want to think about it, Joseph went from the pit to Potiphar to the prison to Pharaoh. So his life really was filled with ups and downs. From the pit, Potiphar's house. Ran Potiphar's house. Good deal. Until Potiphar's wife accused him. Then he went to prison. And then through a series of dreams, God brought him out of prison. But Joseph had every, every right in the world to be bitter. But every place he went, he committed himself to the Lord. He didn't live under the sun. He lived above the sun. And when he became king, uh, the prime minister, excuse me, of Egypt, and after his father died, his brothers came and said, you know, Dad told us, told you, told us not to have you whip up on us. That's a paraphrase, by the way. And he, he said, no, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He committed himself to the Lord. He lived above the sun. But how many people in life live lives of um, bitterness because they didn't get their way? Well, Rehoboam was young and foolish, 1 Kings 12. He went to his father's counselors and they said, you know, the people will serve me if, if I ease the burdens. And his young uh, counselor said to him, no, tell them you're going 
You're going to increase the burdens. You're going to make your, your, your whips scorpions and so forth. He listened to the young people and it cost him the kingdom, but only in fulfillment of the word of God. But uh, Rehoboam was foolish, and he was made king over a lot of people, but he lost 10 of the 12 tribes. So um, so then we see passing the baton in 14 and 15 in uh, Ecclesiastes 4, 14 and 15. For he comes out of prison to be king, and although he was born poor in his kingdom, I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They, they, they were with the second youth who stands in his place. So there was a passing of the baton. There was the old king, there was a king out of prison, and there was another king. But notice the, uh, the result of it all in verse 16, the fickleness of the people. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him, Surely this is vanity and grasping after the wind. I've noticed in all the churches where I've gone to be pastor, whether it's interim or, or full-time, that the, the people there always complain about the former pastor. <laughs> Without exception. Oh, man. Went to one church and we were ready to, we were putting up the door, the second church, we were putting up the door on the back of the U-Haul and uh, ready to unload it. And the, the, tri the, the treasurer of the church stood there and crossed his arms and dryly said, I suppose you know this church is ready to split right down the middle. I almost pulled the door back down. Nobody told us that. But, uh, and half of the people loved the former pastor and the other half despised him. But uh, when the pastor leaves and somebody else comes, they're, they're saying, oh, it's a breath of fresh air. But it repeats itself over and over and over again, whether it's in politics whether it's a school administrator, whether it's teachers, whether it's coaches, it, it doesn't matter. Nobody's satisfied under the sun. And if that's where we're labor, laboring, we will be disappointed under the sun. You know, in, in high school sports, there's only one team that's smiling at the end of every season. And they're the ones that, has the big, that have the big trophy. Everybody else is disappointed. So... Uh, and Lawrence Taylor said, it was Lawrence Taylor said, if the Super Bowl is so super, how come we play it again next year? Vanity. Everything's vanity under the sun. Now, when the uh, Romans, and I, I think you have this slide of, uh, okay. When there was a, a, a Roman conquest, the, the conquering generals would ride into Rome and they would, they would put them on a chariot drawn by four horses. And this is a picture of Marcus Aurelius. And if if you, you probably recognize that name from Gladiator. Not from history classes, of course, but from Gladiator, right? But they would put someone on the chariot with them as they were, they were going through the, through the crowds to the adulation of the, of, the, of the throng. And they would say, remember, you are mortal. Glory is but for a moment. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. And, you know, we need people in politics. We really do. We need godly people in politics. We need godly teachers, godly administrators. Uh, but as we, as we think about life, uh, glory is but for a moment. Um, 
Baby Jessica, you remember baby Jessica that fell in the well? It's been a while back. Some of you are not old enough to remember. She fell down a well in Texas, a small well, and she was trapped there for 33 hours, and it, it captured the heart of the nation. And as uh, they finally brought in basically a, 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 a driller that they would use to drill uh, telephone poles in, and they drilled down beside there and made a second opening, went down and cut the pipe and, and brought her out. She doesn't remember much about it. She was 18 months old, I think, or 20 months old. But the guy who rescued her, the guy that was in the hole that brought her out, was on the speaking circuit for a while. And uh, he, he, he reveled in that. When I was in Wyoming, I did some training for chaplaincy with the police department, and they said people like that often commit suicide because once the, the spotlight moves away from them, there's nothing left. He committed suicide about six or eight months later. Why? Because if you're pursuing that which is under the sun, it's vanity and grasping after the wind. See little kids out playing in the wind and they're trying to grab it. You know, they're trying to, and they never do. We never will either. It's vanity and grasping after the wind. So there's principle, uh, some principles in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, and I love this, uh, this text. Take heed, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. For I say to you, they have their reward. If you live in life and you seek the praise and glory of men, and I'm telling you as a pastor, I want people to like me. Pat wants people to like him. John wants, well, maybe John. Yeah, you want people to like you. We want people to like us. But sometimes we have to do the hard things even if people don't like it. When I do revitalization work, it's, it's not fun. But we have to do what needs to be done. And if you want the praise of men, then the Lord says, you have your reward. But if you do it for the praise of God, that reward is delayed. And if we're searching for significance just from what people say, we will always be disappointed. Reading down a little further. Um, when you pray, uh, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, that they may be, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And verse 6, if you pray, go into your inner room. Um, oh, let me back up. Verse 5. Uh, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they shall have their reward. They get the pat on the back. But I'd rather have the welcoming voice of the Father saying, well done. And you drop on down a little bit further. If you fast, verse 16, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. Woe is me. Eeyore. Um, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward but it doesn't come from God. But drop down to verse 33, Matthew 6, 33. But 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. It's not about what we want. It's about what the, the Father wants. We need to align ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to, we need to know and grow and uh, know, grow and go. If we want our lives to count, you know, as, as a young man, it's, it frightened me. Lord, I don't want to spend my life and have it wasted. I want my life to, to count. I want my life to be significant. Not so that I get the pats on the back, but I want my life to have eternal significance, not just significance now. And I tried to do that even as an engineer because I did not work for my boss. I worked for the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was working in, in seminary, I would sometimes talk to guys about the Lord after their hours were over at 5. But I would work until 10. And if I did talk to them, I would work till 10.30 or 11 because I wanted my boss to get eight hours for eight hours pay. And so, uh, so whatever we do, whatever you do in life, if you're a physician or if you're a bricklayer or whatever, you do it for the glory of God. You serve the Lord with your life. You make it count. Otherwise, you're just spending your life on things that will vanish away in time. So, uh, the goal of life, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, the Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the reward we should want. That's where we should aim, not to please ourselves, but to please God who tests our hearts. We're to live for that which does not fade. Now let's think about Job for a minute. We just went through Job not too long ago. Another tough book. But Job lost basically everything he had in this life except for his wife. And she was almost an enemy. We'll just curse God and die. But this is what Job said about not living under the sun. In Job chapter 19, 25, and 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at last on the earth. He was looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on this earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So his life was bound, I mean, it was bound up in his wealth and so on. God took that all away, and all that Job had left really was the Lord. But he said, I'm looking forward to the time that in my flesh, even though worms consume my body, I will see God. He was living above the sun. And the Lord calls us to do the same. Um, there's an old grave in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, I was looking for one in, in south of Los Animas. There's an old headstone red sandstone, and, and the, the lettering on it has been erased by the wind and the blowing sand down there. It does blow down there, and there's a lot of sand. And only God knows who's buried there. And in this one in, in, in Maryland, uh, they think this is an old slave cemetery, but the descendants of the slaves are saying, whatever happened to our ancestors? So they're going to come in and see if there are human remains buried in these graves. They don't know who they are, but God does.
but God does. And uh, in Revelation uh, 14, 13, it says, Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow after them. Their works follow after them. I am going to share a story, and I'll try and share it quickly. Mark Buchanan wrote a book called uh, Things Unseen. And the question he asked, does life justify living? And he talks about having a wedding on the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia. It was a beautiful day, gorgeous day. The, uh, the sun was shining in the blue sky. The waves were whipped by the wind, and there were sailboats cutting through the waves. Um, they had a wedi- wedding in a church, an Anglican church carved into the hillside. He says, it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. When you went into the church, it was a warm August day and you could smell the flowers and you could smell lemon oil. They'd probably been using Murphy's oil soap <laughs> to, to get ready for the wedding. Anyway, they had a, they had a wonderful wedding and uh, it was just very touching. And afterward, he got in the midst of a conversation with a young philosophy student. He was tall, healthy, and good looking. He said, do you really believe that religious stuff that you were saying up there at the church? He said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, well, I don't. And he smirked and he said, uh, so he said, what do you believe? And he said, I tried your religion for a while, he said, and I found it's just a burden to carry. You know what I figured out? Life justifies living. Uh, life is its own reward and explanation. I don't need some pie-in-the-sky mirage to keep me going. This life has enough pleasure and mystery and adventure in it not to need anything else to account for it. Life justifies living. Good. Very good. He said, I believe you today. Look here at, at everything, you know, the beauty of the creation, all of these people here, the, the smell of, of uh, prawn roasting on the fire, and the sound of music and laughter and love. He said, yeah, it's great. But he said, uh, I'm thinking of someone else. I met a guy named Richard last February. Richard had been on the street since he was 12. He was a drug addict, and he made his living by selling himself as a male prostitute. He's 40 years old, but he looks 60. He's now old. He's diseased. He's ugly. And he's dying from AIDS. I said, I know another young man uh, named Ernie. Ernie's a young man that's in his 20s. He was athletic. He could do all kinds of stuff. He was handsome. He was agile. He could do all kinds of things well. He got married and he and his wife couldn't have children, so they, uh, they adopted three African kids and one from um, Mexico. And on the day of the last adoption, he got the report back from the doctor. He hadn't been feeling well. He'd been suffering dizziness and found out that he had MS. And he said, just two months ago, I was with him And um, one of his children is selling drugs in Vancouver and is wanted by the police. Another is in reform school in Oregon. If he steps out of line at all, he's going to prison. And Ernie is now in his early 40s. His once powerful and agile body is twisted, rigid, spasmodic, raw-boned. His speech is so shattered that it takes me at least three tries to understand the simplest sentence. 
It takes him half hour to eat a sandwich and he chokes on every bite. So how do I exactly explain to Richard and Ernie, and Ernie that life justifies living? The young philosophy student had no response. He said he'd have to think about it and get back to me. I gave him my address and asked him to write at me when he came up with something. I never heard from him because life does not justify living. Eternity does. My friends, if we spend all of our time trying to live under the sun, we're going to be empty, void, and disappointed. And so the Lord wants us to, to really hitch our wagon, not to things that fade, but the Lord Jesus Christ who never fades. And we see a picture of a sunset here, and sunsets fade. Life fades. But our relationship with Christ does not. Years ago, in our first church, we had, we had a couple in our church that did the janitorial work, and they lived in the house next door, rent-free. And uh, Edna was nearly blind, and her husband was just a hard worker, and they only had one shelf to keep their household goods. And they'd been having trouble with, with roaches, and she put the roach poison up on the same shelf with everything else. Well, she died suddenly, and he, he lost his mind. And we suspect that maybe she, instead of picking up seasoning, she picked up the roach poison and uh, killed her, and he ended up at Terrell State Hospital. As a young pastor, I went out to see him twice. And the first time he, he knew who I was, and we had a great conversation. But the second time I went, he didn't know me or much of anybody. But he was restrained in his bed. They had his hands tethered and his feet tethered. And I asked the nurses, what's going on? They said, uh, well, he's always climbing out of bed and he's climbing under his bed. Well, he was a mechanic by trade. And he would get under the bed to change the oil. And any time they come in, he'd be under his bed. His feet would be sticking out and he would be down there, you know, working underneath the bed. So that day we came in, he didn't remember me, but he remembered he was a mechanic. And he said to me, can we sing? And I said, yes, we can sing. And he began to sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. He only remembered two things, that he was a mechanic and he loved Jesus. He lived for what was not just under the sun. And God wants us to live not just for what's under the sun, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Now, Father, um, as we come to a text like this and we see that these rulers ruled and it was all vanity and chasing after the wind, how much life is, of, of life is like that for us? Oh, Father, keep us from wasting the, the, the time that you give us. Help us to be in tune with you. And Lord, we love you and we thank you for loving us. And we, uh, we praise you that in Jesus Christ, we don't have to hitch our wagon to that which fades. We will hitch our wagon to that which will endure forever. And we give you praise in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand and close our service together.